Hey Dragons, welcome to episode 67 of the Dumbbells and Dragons podcast. This episode is with video game designer and college professor Bob DeShutter. He is a really talented guy who is making a historical narrative, very unique video game. We talk about it a bunch on the podcast and hopefully we'll have links so people can see screenshots and get to know a little bit more about that video game. And of course, all the links will be in the show notes. The game is called Brukel, B-R-U-K-E-L, I believe. But check the show notes just to make sure I'm correct on that one. I hope you enjoy the conversation. The Dumbbells and Dragons podcast is a part of the Almost Better Podcast Network, and it's powered by Pinecast. Work out, nerd out. In the basement, rolling dice. I'm a wizard. When we play, we do it right. Candles flicker, fighting dragons in my mind. In my mind, just for kicks. DM says you're gonna die. Roll a D6. Welcome again, everybody, to an episode of the Dumbbells and Dragons podcast. Today, I am joined by game designer and professor at Miami University, Bob DeShutter. Bob, how are you today? I am doing great. How are you doing, Ken? Oh, we've already discussed a little bit. I am I'm fairly tired, but it's, <laughs> it's only 10 a.m. here, and I've already pretty much put in a full day. But I'm really excited to talk to you. We've had to reschedule a few times, but I really think that what you got going on is important and people uh, would enjoy hearing about it. So I'm really excited that we could connect this morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me over. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Excellent. And just so people can get a little bit of an idea about who you are, um, what do you teach over at Miami University and what sort of games uh, are you working on? Yeah, cool. Um so uh, I, I, I do a lot of different things, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty multidisciplinary. Um, I actually have um, a master's in visual arts and a PhD in, in, in social science, so I do both research and, and, and design work. At Miami, most of my courses are game design related. I, um, I, I also do some games and learning stuff and games for, for applications. Um, my main line of research is older um, gamers, so people over 50, how they play video games, making better games for older audiences, I guess. Um, and that's kind of my scholarship, I guess. Um, as a game designer, um, I've, I've worked on a lot of educational games back in the days. So I've been doing that for, oh, um, like two, since 2007. So yeah, it's about 10 years now. Um, I've worked on a lot of different things, but right now I'm working on a game called Brugal, which is about my 90-year-old grandmother's um, childhood. In, in Belgium, because I'm originally from Belgium. And um, the game is basically how life was on a farmhouse back in those days. But um, obviously in the 1940s, the war happened. Um, so it turns into this, um, well, we call it a dark historical thriller. So um, it's a bit of a horror game at some, well, it turns into a horror game at some point. So um, that's what we're working on right now. Um, yeah. I guess that, that, that answers your question, right? <laughs> say, yeah. So about uh, Brukel, yeah. what – so you – obviously I think that you – first of all, World War II is a great right. – <laughs> is a great premise for a horror thriller game because um, it is a horrible kind of – kind of a horrible, you know, spot on this world's – on world history – so what kind of gave you the inspiration to start developing this game? Right. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, so um, 
Well, you know, um, with the main protagonist being my grandmother, she had this, these stories from, from the war, basically, for years and years. I mean, I remember um, having, like, uh, a birthday party or something, um, and my dad and my uncle are talking about the war because they're both post-war generation, obviously, and um, they're fascinated by it because they never actually were in it, and they're talking about what certain generals did and uh, what certain politicians did in that time. And all of a sudden, for the very first time in my life, my grandmother actually was like, yeah, you guys don't know anything about this. And she starts telling this story about how an English officer almost uh, shot my grandfather in the face when he was 16. Um, oh, wow. And it basically just shut every yeah. It basically just shut up the entire <laughs> party, obviously, because uh, you know, like of all the maybe there's like twenty family members there at the time. You know, none of those twenty people, um, except the people who got married in the family, obviously. But a lot of the people who are sitting around the table would not have been there if that would actually had happened. So uh, that was a pretty powerful moment. Um, you know, first of all, I mean, it's always nice when <laughs> your grandmother just shuts up your dad like that. Cause it's funny <laughs> as hell. But uh, <laughs> aside from, you know, well, my, my, my dad has a PhD in physics. You know, he's a smart dude. And, and my grandmother never really got to go to school. So, you know, there's this this edu- educational thing that's, that, that was kind of funny about that moment. But um, aside from that, it's also, it, you know, it gives you some idea of how powerful these stories are, how how much they actually impact all the lives of everybody that's alive today. Um, so that's where the inspiration kind of got from. I've, I've, you know, I have a whole, I have a folder on my computer that has like maybe 20, 30 um, proper game ideas in there, not just, you know, some, some random ideas, but things that I'm actually thinking of starting to work on. Um, and this was one of them, and I needed a project for. Um, I was going to go on a on a on a on a leaf on a research leaf, so a year that I shouldn't be teaching, and I could just work on my research because you know as professors we do that as well. And um, since you know I'm a professor that also teaches design, it's perfectly fine at Miami that I do a creative um, project instead of something that's just um, research. So um, I jumped on this one. Um, I interviewed my grandmother for over five hours. I got a whole lot of stories out of it. And I think that's kind of the, the key, well, selling point, if you will, although I'm, I'm not really anticipating to make millions of dollars of this. I mean, this is not Minecraft, but, um, you know, the, the key selling point of the game is that um, the audio basically predates everything. The stories are authentic. They're all real. They're spoken by a person who, like, who lived through all these stories. Um, and they're they're pretty dramatic. Um, my grandma's um, mother died at a very young age, so my grandmother and her older sister had to take care of their uh, six siblings um, when they were teenagers, um, uh, while the dad was basically working the field. So um, there's already you know there's already a lot of drama in the in, in the bits of the game that are more in the 1920s and 30s, and then the war happened to this family, and it's it's just um, it's it, it, it's yeah it's it's I mean I'm happy with it. I mean the stories are. Um, are good. They're authentic. I, I don't know a lot of games that have done something like this. It, it was a major design challenge for me as well because it's, you know, like if you make a game, most of the time you'll write the story and you'll get voice actors and you'll, you know, you make sure that the, the, the voices are the way you want them to be. But I, I didn't have any of these options for this game, obviously. You know, it's they're recorded as is and I could have her tell the same story again, of, you know, when I visited her at, at a different point in time. Um, so I could get a second take of it. But you know, my grandma is not an actor, so everything – I asked her at some point, you know, I wanted to try. Like, it would be really nice if I could have this line and just read it to me like you would say it to me. And she's completely incapable of doing that. It sounds so forced and so bad. So all the audio in the game is completely 
authentic and um yeah so that's kind of the idea you know um I, I, I basically just got inspired by her and she's she's an amazing storyteller she's she, she, you know she's she tells me that she sees everything happen again and to a traumatic uh point even um when she's telling these stories she's, she's basically just saying what she's seeing and um yeah I, I really like the audio i don't think a voice actor could do it just as good as as, as, as she does it because it's so authentic so um that's kind of the idea um and that's what inspired me you know how good her stories were <laughs> that's that's really interesting. And I think that's actually, it's very unique is that you have mm-hmm. this, this kind of one take with your grandmother and it's her words. And it is that there's that authenticity to it that, yeah, a trained professional probably couldn't bring that sort of emotion, that sort of feeling to it. But I think it also gives such a unique experience to the the player as soon as they realize that the voice that they're hearing is actually the one that went through all of this. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know of, of uh, movies or games that, that have done this actually. And, you know, I mean, like I said, from a design perspective, it's, it's not easy. It's really not easy. You have to, you know, I had a bunch of, because I have all the interviews first and I have all the stories first and all the audio and I cleaned them up and all and everything. And I went through them and like, these are good ones. These are not so good. And, and then it's just like, okay, but now I have to put this all together into a game that's going to feel coherent. And for me, it's very important that when you play the game that it feels like, um, like you know, almost like any other game does. Like, you know, this entire experience is completely coherent. It's completely integrated with each other. Um, and it's not like, you know, there's bits and pieces that are kind of loosely connected or something. It had to feel like... Like I actually would have written the game like this, and then I had somebody do the audio to some extent, because um, you know, I I I think that's the hardest part of it for me. Um, and I had some help with some other people who, who who helped me with the writing of well, the writing with putting everything together basically, and then just turning into a game that's fun to play, that's that, that's challenging, that, that that's meaningful, and then that you would you know really want to delve into and i think we've we've struck a good balance i mean it's going to be a short game because of that because obviously i mean i have five hours of interviews but not the entire five hours are all going to be interesting um but i think you know we'll probably have like a, a two-hour experience or something which i, I kind of like you know i um that kind of goes to my research with older adults i guess but um when you know me being a grown-up with a with a very demanding job and everything. I can't play video games anymore like I, I did when I was a teenager. You know, when I was a teenager, I played everything and I finished every game. And now I have to be very selective. Most of the games I play are just artsy indie games, uh, and I, I I like that Brukel is going to be short because that means that people like me can actually finish it and get the entire experience out of it. Um, so you know, I think it's it, it kind of worked out well in the end. Oh yeah, I I. I as well have a demanding job and other other priorities, you know, yeah. that that my le- that I have to, you know, commit time to. Right. So the idea of a short game or a game where I can play 10 minutes at a time, 20 minutes at a time uh is really mm-hmm. beneficial to me and to I think other people in my in my age age range. Mhm. Like, I don't have time to sit down and play, you know, three hours of Zelda Breath of the Wild or anything right, like right. that. I have I have 20 minutes before I go to bed to play a few rounds of Mario Kart. 
Right, right, right. Yeah. So my, so I think that's actually really, really cool that you are kind of aiming for this, this new, I don't want to say new demographic, but right. unique demographic. Uh, before I get into that, I wanted to ask, you said it's a horror thriller. Is it like yeah. 3D first person? Is it... Oh. Yeah, yeah, I should talk a little bit about that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, it's a, it's a 3D uh, first-person game. It's built in Unreal Engine. It, it, it looks beautiful to the extent, you know. I mean, I'm working with a very small uh, production team, really. I mean, there's some students that help out on it, but I've done all the programming myself, for example. So um, it's a small team, but the game looks looks good. It, it looks good. Unreal Engine games typically do. Um, and, um, yeah, in terms of, of gameplay, um, I think you could compare it with games like... Um, maybe gone home um but i th- i think it's it's a little bit more interactive than a game like gone home in the sense that um the first section of the game is you have a smartphone with you and the smartphone has focus range digital zoom um exposure and uh, a flash uh photography function on it um and you basically go into the game playing as me as the designer it's kind of meta um, who is going into the original house of Bruegel, the original farmhouse. Um, and your task is that, well, you're going to make this game eventually. <laughs> um, and you want to take pictures of the objects in here so that your your team can actually recreate the house. And you have a list of all the stories that your grandma talked about in the interviews. Some of them are, are abstracts, like, you know, take a, take a photo uh, that of an object that reminds you of a big family or take a photo of... Um, a chair or something, you know, it can be very abstract. It could be very specific. It's a pretty long list and you go into the house and you don't really have uh, enough time because we have a day night cycle to get um, all the pictures in there. The, li- the list is too long to actually do that. So players can kind of pick the things that they want to explore. Basically the first part of the game is just you with your camera taking pictures of objects and you know, the game detects when you take a picture of the object and you can take really beautiful pictures of it, which I think I had so much fun just play testing the game because taking pictures works well it's it's really really fun it gives you this kind of artistic uh accomplishment uh sense you know and um at some point um the game will um start um i don't want to spoil too many things for people who want to play it obviously so the game will shift into this nightmare um and it, it's still first person and everything you still have your camera and then you end up in this um yeah, in this alternate Silent Hilly kind of, you know, version of reality of the farmhouse, um, a little bit of a dream world, but more like, a, I don't know, a Hellraiser kind of horror world. Actually, for the graphics, the graphic style is slightly inspired on Stranger Things when, when they go into the upside down where, you know, it's kind of bluish. Um, and um, then you will go through these experiences that my grandma actually lived through. Um, and yeah, you, the, the past will come back to life basically. Um, and you know, I don't want to give it away because the game actually has a plot, <laughs> <laughs> which was, it was hard to do because it's all like these vignettes, but in the end, I kind of feel like it came together in a sense that it's like, okay, it actually feels like it has a plot, even though these are all, you know, just random, um, stories that, that actually happened to her. It, it does feel, it does feel like there's this linear progression in it. And, um, we have, a um, the, the, my, my, my my grandmother's sister, who passed away right after the war, is a character in the game as well, and it's basically about exploring what happened to her a little bit. Um, so yeah, that's kind of um, how it goes, you know. So it's, it's, it starts with this farmhouse where squatters have been messing everything up, and you basically get transported back to how the house was back in World War II. Um, and it's, it's you know from I think what makes it 
really cool, that thing. You know, it's, it's all – when you think about a World War II game, most of the time it's about being a heroic soldier. There's some ex- exceptions to that, like maybe um, – like Spec, Spec Ops the Line is a game in which you are a soldier that's just going through trauma and, um, you know, um, um, that's just, yeah, his entire life is falling apart because he's been killing people abroad and he can't deal with it anymore. Um, there's, there, there's, there's some games where, um, I forgot the name of them, you know, there's a couple of games where you don't necessarily even play a soldier, but you're just seeing how war really is. And, and this game is really about, you know, um, there's no idealizations. It's it's just regular people that has nothing to do with the the British and the Americans and the Germans. You know, they're just living in this country that just happens to be on the front line. And um, my grandma at the time was 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 14 years old, and she is just trying to make sense of you know why are these people with foreign nationalities killing each other in my backyard? And you know, one day the house is filled with Germans, the next day it's filled with the English. Um, it's not even like that the English are the good guys. I mean, they are, to some extent, they are the good guys, but there, there are some stories where some of the English, the English soldiers did things that definitely were not okay. (laughs) So, you know, it's, um, it's a really interesting take on war. It's a completely different perspective from anything that I've seen in, in, in most games with a couple of, um, exceptions. I know there, there, I think there was this Czechoslovakian game where, you basically live in a house um, or no, a, a Bosnian game or something. And it's, it's like civil war is going on. And um, I forgot the title, uh, this war of mine, that's what I'm thinking of. Um, so this war of mine d- does something similar, I guess, but it's more like uh, a Sims type of game where you're just doing a people simulator. This is more like a walking simulator, but it's, it's short and sweet. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's all killer. No, no filler. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really cool. And when you say that you're, your grandmother's sister is going to be in the game. Did you yeah. like? Did you design these characters around pictures of them, or is it just? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm not a 3D modeler. Um, you know, I have an art background and I can do 2D art really well, but I've never gotten into 3D modeling just because you know it's a it's a skill that takes a while to learn. And yeah, I had some 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 good students of mine. Um, Chris Coppoletti is his name. Um, you know, he's he's graduating soon, so he'll be looking for a job. So maybe somebody hears this, but um, he he did the model um, for the sister, and it, it turned out really well. And yeah, we, we I've been happy with some of the work that my students put out for it. It, it looks good. It looks good. And um, towards the end of the game, I'm I'm thinking we'll see how, how it ends up because these are you know these are things that I haven't put in there yet. But for the credits, I might do something where you see the original pictures and you can you know kind of compare what the model looked like and what the the real character looked like. Because for every object in the game, I, I they're all based on reference pictures that. That, you know, the the house doesn't exist anymore the way it used to be back in those days. Obviously, somebody renovated it and they completely changed things. But I, I, I went to a bunch of historical museums where they had houses that were similar to it. So we, we, we used a lot of reference pictures and used a, a lot of, um, you know, my grandma actually helped me a whole lot with just doing the architecture and just figuring out where the rooms were in relation to each other. And she has a very good memory, thankfully. And it worked out that way. So I think, you know, the game is never going to be 100% historically accurate, um, but it is going to be 100% uh, subjectively accurate to her experience, which, you know, um, from my perspective, I, I'm actually more interested in that than his. I mean, I'm not like a history kind of buff person. Um, I mean, I think for people like that, the game will have a lot to offer. If you're really into history, the game will have a lot to offer still. But 
for me, you know, I have a background in, in media psychology, and I, I just think that that subjective representation of, of the memories of a 19-year-old person in a video game is just really cool. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what I'm shooting for. Well, and you've you've said so many good good nuggets. I think right. that you you know you said you're working with a very small team, but I think that that's beneficial because then everyone can kind of play off one another, and instead of these these huge, you know, massive teams where one person is in charge of like a blade of grass. Like you have right. more cohesive synergy going through your team. And I think that means that there's a lot more heart in it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Plus for, you know, a lot of the students that they also have family members or, well, my students are younger than I am obviously. So, um, but if they, um, you know, some of their grandparents, uh, they're probably too young to actually be in it, but all of them have, have stories that are in relation to uh, the war, and some of them still have grandparents that are old enough, I think, because I remember a couple of students being like, yeah, I mean, my, my, my grandfather used to be a World War II fighter pilot or something and, and stuff like that, you know? So I think that's the cool thing about Bruckel as well, where um, if you'd be working on a game that's basically just a you know standard World War II first-person shooter, and you're just killing Nazis or Russians or whatever, um, you know it's it's. I think the the level of personal involvement and meaningfulness that you can get from a game like that is is different. I mean, when I played, um, I think Medal of Honor Frontline. I think that was the first one that might have um, D-Day in there and everything. I remember. It opened with, with the, the Battle of D-Day, but um, later on in the game, there's a section, I think, where they do Market Garden or something, where you're actually in the Netherlands. And uh, since I'm from Belgium, that was really cool because all of, I mean, you know, the Netherlands are so clear, uh, close by. We, we, we went there all the time. I, my, uh, my, my city in Belgium, my hometown was pretty close to it. Um, so all of a sudden, that was the first time that I was like, hey, this is a city that I've actually been to. To or you know, and I'm I'm doing I'm, I'm shooting Germans in here, though. But it still felt like this authenticity, um, and I think you know with Bruckel, it's not necessarily because for Americans it's going to be very different because it's in in, in uh, a Flemish farmhouse. Um, but at the same time, everybody has some connection to the World War to World War Two. I mean, people my generation, thirty year olds, definitely still have that connection through their grandparents, and uh, you know, so it's. Um, I think there's some meaningfulness there to be found for everyone. And it even still went back to some of my students. So um, I think that's that's a really powerful thing to have in a game. Well, and what you said just rings so true with me because I'm you and I are very close in age. Yeah. And and it's it's poignant to say that we are the last generation <laughs> or one of the last generations that are going to hear from World War II survivors in person. Yeah. Yep. And that's what I mean, that's one of the, the reasons why I wanted to why this is the project that came out of the folder, I guess, because I kind of feel that the time is right for it. I mean, you know, um, there's so much war talk going on these days again. I mean, ah, the last 50 years, there's always been something, you know, with Cold War and everything as well, but um, and, and Iraq and Afghanistan, but you know, at the end of the day, the, the the consequences that a war have on the people in the country that have nothing to do with the political conflict are, are pretty devastating. And uh, I really wanted to make a game that would just highlight that because for future generations, I mean, can, I can see 
50 years from now, you know, there's going to be there's going to be 20 year olds that have no idea what that entire World War Two thing was about just as much as, you know, the hundred year war back uh, back in the days. I, I don't know that much about I mean, it popped up in history class when I was in high school. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's you don't really have any personal connection with. It. And I think when people start making games like like Brugel, I hope a lot more people will do similar things and just make games about, you know, how life was for their grandparents, for example. We have the technology to do that right now. A former student of mine, actually, who's still a really good friend, is actually working on a game about his grandmother as well now. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he's in an earlier stage of, stage of, the prog- uh, of, of his progress. But uh, um, I'm really curious about that as well because, you know, that would be a story about a, um, a 90-year-old lady who lived in Ohio during the war. And, <laughs> you know, these are really cool ways to document history and honestly i mean when i was in high school if we could just play video games like brugel all the time instead of having to go through these textbooks i would sign up for that right away (laughs) (laughs) giving people a different medium to learn about their history and i'm hoping you know you said 50 years from now we got 20 year olds not really understanding what world war ii was about i'm really hoping that those 20-year-olds look back and are so aghast that based on someone's genetics, you would have a desire mm-hmm. to kill them. Like, that that's what I'm hoping for those 20-year-olds 50 years from now. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think, I don't think there's very many people who would disagree with me on that. Uh, but uh, with Bruegel, where, what, uh, platform is it going to be available on? Are we talking mobile? Are we talking computer, uh, console? Um, yeah. So, well, first of all, um, probably a Steam release. I'll, 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 I'll look. Um, you know, I'll look at other options from Steam as well. Like, um, you know, what, what, what do you have these days? Like GOG and. Um, but um, for me right now, it's like let's just get this game on Steam. See what happens. I'll, I'll do a bunch of exhibits. Um, as well, you know, I'll, I'll submit it to, for example, the Smithsonian does this big expo that 11,000 or big exhibit that 11,000 people visit every year. I'll submit it to that. Um, and, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how, how it goes. If, if people like the game very much and it's doing well, I might port it over to console. Um, I do, it really depends on, on how much time I have available once it's the, the game is released and then, um, you know, it's had a couple of years of marketing behind it. Um, if if there's an interest for it, I would really like to port it over to mobile. Uh, a lot of people have asked me, why not VR, Bob? And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, VR has a lot of different um, intricacies to it that are going to be hard for Bruegel because you're walking around a lot and everything. But um, I think for mobile, it would be a really good match because what I would do, Dennis, um, since in the game you're, you're – uh, well, your weapon, if you will, you know, if this was a first-person shooter, you'd have a gun, but this is not a first-person shooter, so you have a smartphone. Um, what I would like to do is take that digital smartphone and actually, instead of that, use your actual smartphone and have you play the game on an actual smartphone and that you could just, you know, look around you in 360 degrees, press a button to walk forward, and basically taking pictures is just taking pictures on your smartphone and, and port it. Uh, to mobile that way and i think that would be really cool because then it becomes into this alternate reality game you know where you're just sitting in your chair with, with, with a smartphone and you see this house through it and you can walk through the house and everything and i think that'd be a really cool experience it would be a really good match for what Bruegel um already is like 
uh, and it would be a substantial amount of work. But if the game does 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 well already, I, I don't see why I wouldn't do that. I mean, it just sounds like such a cool design challenge again. And that's kind of what I'm about. You know, it's not about just making a video game. I want to make a video game that's going to be meaningful to the people who play it, and that gives me some sort of a design challenge that I haven't really seen um, before. And I think porting it over to a smartphone and having the smartphone actually be part of the game itself would be so ridiculously cool. Well, yeah, and it's not just about giving... It's about creating this unique experience for mm. the player. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, when when you did mention it, I was like, this game sounds like it would be really great in 3D right. <laughs> or, in, or in VR, yeah, I should yeah, say. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely excited about it, and I definitely think that mobile... I do most of my gaming on mobile mm-hmm. or on my 3ds anyway so that's my pro uh that's my predominant gaming platform that yeah. being said do you have a timeline for release um i'm looking at spring 2018 uh, at this point we okay. were the, the game is in the, i mean the game is uh, there's one scene that we still need to implement, but aside from that, it's fully playable. Um, you can you can play it from beginning to end. Um, it's rough around the edges in some places. There's a couple of placeholders left and right, but not too many anymore. Um, the menus are in there. The settings are done for like 75%. Um, but, you know, it's like at least 30% of your, your production typically is just polishing it, and that's where we're heading right now. We have to put that one more scene in, then the game will be in beta, and then we'll start um, doing lots and lots of play testing with uh, people who've never been a part of the production team, um, and we'll start polishing it. Um, one thing that I'd really like to get in there, but we'll see how it goes. I mean, a lot of it is just depending on how much time I can allocate um, to the game, but I'd love to have a feature in there where you could just walk around in the house and just take pictures. I mean, we we, we have the, the code in there for taking pictures and walking around the house anyways, but that you can just really go through the list once you finish the game or something. And Because um, I think the photography mechanic, I wasn't expecting that, to be honest. I mean, I thought, you know, photography makes a lot of sense story-wise and narratively, but... Um, once I actually programmed that camera in there, I was like, this is so fun. And I'm not, I'm not like a photography guy, you know. I'm not like the person who has like um, DSLR cameras or anything. I mean, I used to own one when I was in art school. But, um, you know, I'm not a person that just takes pictures of everything. I, you know, I have an Instagram account with like three pictures on it or something. So uh, it was for me, it was like really weird that I'm in this video game just taking pictures of objects and at first, I'm just playtesting, you know, I'm take a picture of the stove and see if the game registers it from the angles that you could possibly take the picture of and, you know, that worked then. But I started to notice that really soon that I just loved taking those pictures so much that even when I was playtesting, I would take another one and another one because I want to get a perfect shot, you know. And I'm just like really happy with messing around with the focus range and everything, you know, making the background look blurry and have the object come out and then mess with the lighting a little bit. Because once, once I noticed how powerful that was as a mechanic i i started like okay um let's put curtains on the windows and let's make it so you can open and close them so you can decide how the light falls in and let's you know when it gets dark outside let's just not have the player work with the flashlight all the time let's just put you know buttons on the wall so that the player can actually turn out the turn on the lights and stuff like that and so i would really like to you know put in an exploration mode or something where you can just take pictures because i think there's definitely going to be people who are gonna you know like the entire premise of Bruegel and everything, but the the pictures are going to be the thing that really sets it apart for them. And because it kind of, 
it kind of d- did that for me as well. I mean, I love the nightmare sections. I love how these things came together. But the taking pictures thing for me is like the killer feature at this point. I love it so much. It's so ridiculously fun. So, you know, um, so we'll see how, how it goes with the release date. I might push it back. It might go earlier. It, it, but I'm kind of shooting for spring 2018. And a lot will depend on how quickly I can polish everything, get the original experience in there, and then see. I mean, there's still a part of me that would love to do something where you can just post your pictures to Instagram or Facebook from from within the game and stuff for people who really like to do this thing because I kind of wish I could do that easily, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and that's that social media integration is mm-hmm. – it's, it's I don't want to say it's important these days, but it's definitely more present in our everyday lives than, oh, yeah. than it used to be. Yeah, it would add a lot to it, I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there is there anything more we need to touch on with Brukel, or can I start asking you questions um, about your older gamer stuff? Um, let's see. In terms of Brukel, I mean platform and everything. No, um, you know the website for Brukel is BrukelGame.com, but I'm sure people will find it. <laughs> yeah, and and we will include as usual links to ah, all that it. in the show notes. So absolutely. Yeah. No, I yeah I think we're good good on Brukel then. I guess yeah. Now you do some work with just older older people in gaming, and I was just wondering how you got involved in that. Yeah. What what kind of spawned this this research into essentially an older generation of gamers? Right. Yeah. So, um, well, um, let's see where where should I start with that thing. Um, so basically what happened was I, I, I went to art school. I got my master's there and, um, you know, I kind of figured out afterwards that I didn't just want to, you know, become a graphic designer or something. I mean, nothing against graphic designers, but it's, it's I felt for me it was a tedious job to do. And um, I wanted to move forward. And the reason why I got into arts was video games. I wanted to make video games. And back in those days, I'm, I'm talking like, uh, say, 2004 uh, 2003 even probably um, there really weren't any video game degrees in Belgium and actually in the entire world I mean there were some but it's not like you know now you have hundreds of them but back then it was pretty limited um, uh, so you know I went to a regular art school thing not in a video game programming but the entire time I, I just made video games um, and my teachers were fine with that so it worked out well but um once I graduated, I was like, yeah, you know, there are no video game companies in Belgium that I could work for at the time. So uh, I kind of ended up like, you know what, I'm just going to further my education and see what happens because this is going to, you know, in the future, these opportunities are going to open up anyway. So I don't really – and education in Belgium is actually really cheap. I mean it's ridiculously expensive over here, but in Belgium it's 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 – it's not free, but it's almost free. It's, it's um, you know, the, the most expensive part is just getting, um, you know, your dorm or whatever. Uh, but the tuition costs are extremely low. So, uh, you know, there was nothing really holding me back there. And I, I had a web development company of my own at the time. So that helped with paying the bills as well. Um, so, you know, what happened then is I got into a PhD program because um, I wanted to study video games and learn how to do good research on video games. Um and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with that at the time. I just knew that I wanted to get into video games more. Um, so I got in touch with the only professor um, that had written a book on video games in Belgium that I knew of. And I gave him a phone call. And he's like, um, and you know, he's like, I don't know if you can get into a PhD like this because I mean, you're from art school. I'm like, yeah, yeah, just give me a shot. And I'm like, okay. So I went over and I managed to convince him. And then we needed a topic and uh, – 
you know, I had I basically had to do um, four years of communication science in one year to be able to move forward on the PhD. So, um, you know, I had to read a whole lot of books and papers on, on, on the field. And um, I read this paper on how older adults are um, lonely. Well, lonely older adults are actually – not all older adults are lonely, but um, some are lonely. And the ones that are typically watch television for um, parasocial interaction, which is um, this illusion of social interaction with the fictional characters that you see on screen. Um, it, it, it's, it's a communication theory. And um, – well, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, we're talking 2003, 2004. So I think World of Warcraft was around at the time. And I was like, Jesus Christ. I mean, come on. If you're if you're like, you know, 70 years old and you're really lonely and you want to interact with people, but, you know, your body is, is not allowing you to go out very much anymore. You're just watching the bold and the beautiful. That's like, I mean, that's really sad. I was just thinking like, why not just play World of Warcraft or something or Second Life because you can actually interact with real people that way, you know? And that's got that's what got me into it. I was just like, okay, this is go- this audience is going to exist because my generation is not going to watch the bold and the beautiful. We're going to be playing video games when when we grow old. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. Um, so at the time, I felt like you know what, there has to be already people over sixty or something playing video games. I was like, let's make it easier. Let's go for fifty. Um, um, and um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I had some professors tell me like this audience doesn't exist. You can't do a PhD on it. I was like, well, I'm gonna try anyways, and it worked out well. Um, it took me about a year or so, and and, and I interviewed um, like 45, I think, people between 50 and, and and 75 who played video games on a regular basis, um, which was actually re- it's it's a, it's a unique thing in my research. Most people who do research on on older video game players get people in their lab, have them play video games that they never played before, and then see what happens. Uh, my research has always been people who actively play video games and for who video games is a part of their life in some way. Um, so that's kind of um, how that ball got rolling, I guess. I mean, I never looked back. It's, it's been a really good topic. It got me talking at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, which for an academic is extremely hard to get on. You know, I, I was on the main game design track, you know. They have an education track, and a lot of academics manage to get on that track, and that's pretty easy. But to get on the actual game design track, I mean, you're submitting a proposal for a talk in competition with game designers of AAA games. And, you know, yours has to be good enough that it'll put you on that stage. And actually, my games on on aging um, two years ago for the first time was got through the selection process because, you know, I had... I've been doing this kind of research since 2004. I have so much material. And I, um, older adults, right now, there are about 40 million people over 50 in the United States that are playing video games. Um, and my prediction is that by 2000, what was it, 35, I think, um, we're looking at more than 100 million people um, fairly easily even in the United States alone, uh, over 50 that are playing video games if, if, if uh, the current trends are um, you know keeping up. So, um, you know, the game industry has taken notice and um, yeah, I've been able to do consultancy for a couple of companies and everything. Um, you know, so my research has, has picked up really well and, and that's kind of how I got into it. Um, just basically I read this one paper about how lonely older adults watch the bold and the beautiful because they're lonely. <laughs> it's, been serving, it's been serving me really well that way. And, and obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's something I care deeply about too, because um I, I get to know so many people over 50 that have just fascinating lives when you interview them, you know. I mean, you do this podcast. I'm sure you run into interesting people all the time. And when I do my research and I talk to 50-year-olds playing video games, I mean, most of the time these are people that are a little bit uncommon sometimes, you know, 
well, definitely when I did my PhD, there were there were people doing really innovative stuff and things that it's not, you know, you, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it took me a while to, to, to get a good sample together. So it's, um, you get to know so many cool people and I, I've really have grown this appreciation for later life at, at, at this point in time and I, I really feel that I'm making a difference by doing this research because the game industry is now thinking about how can we make, I mean, when I, when I went, went to the GDC last time, Microsoft actually invited me over with a bunch of other people who do accessibility stuff too, um, just to talk about how can we make our games and our consoles better for, for older adults. So it's, uh, it's, it's really cool to be able to do this stuff. Yeah. Well, I was, I just did some, some math in my head mm-hmm. and the, the original NES came yeah. out in 85 here in the United States, which was 32 years ago. So if you were 18 at the time, you're now 50 years old. Yep. <laughs> and that's how and, it is. Yeah. And it's like, like I, I told the story on, on the podcast recently is I used to play Dr. Mario with my dad all the time. <laughs> and, and he was over 50 at the time and he's still over 50. <laughs> he's now over <laughs> He's now over 60, and I was one of the lucky few that managed to pick up an NES Classic. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, for retail. I didn't pay scalper prices on that. <laughs> right, right, right. But I gave it to him uh, as a gift, and it's like, it's so much fun because now we're reliving part of my childhood, and we're reliving kind of his... His, I don't want to say younger days, but his old relationship with me, and we're creating all these new memories and having new conversations while we're playing our old school video games. So it's, I really can't see myself getting to retirement age and either being at home and retired or staying in a nursing home when I get really old and not playing video games. It's just kind of, they were there for the formative years of my life, and as I get older, I'm going to continue that passion until hopefully I die peacefully. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I actually joke about this sometimes when I do a presentation or a talk. You know, just like, yeah, I mean, the reason why I'm doing this, it's you know, it's just all about me. You know, I just want to make sure there's good games in the retirement home when I'm going there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yep, it's 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 all just uh, you know, out of narcissistic concerns. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. I mean, obviously that's not true, but the the, the thing is just, you know, it's uh, it's definitely something that popped into my head at some point. Like, we're all, and, you know, in my talk, I really, every talk I do, I try to at least take three minutes or something, you know, um, to just emphasize that part of it. Because, I mean, it's a silly joke, but at the same time, it's true for everybody in the audience. I don't care, you know. I mean, the show is Dumbles and Dragons, and I'm assuming that a lot of the people listening to this are in, are in good shape and, and are working out a lot too, but it doesn't matter what good shape you're in right now. I mean, there is going to be this point in your life where you're going to have a nature-related disability uh, that will prevent you from doing a whole lot of stuff, you know? Um, and at that point, video games become a lot more interesting for a start as long as they are accessible to you because a lot of the times that's a problem too you know that they make video games and if you have poor eyesight or no accommodations for it and and that's why i work closely with the accessibility groups um in the game industry as well because it's really important i can i can really see i mean at some point 
Well, you know, medical science will always pick up and, and they have been doing that very, very well. And people remain active much, much longer than they have. You know, like my grandma has way worse issues than um, I will have when I'm 90 years old. But, um, you know, at the same time, it's, it's, it's something that I think is relevant. At some point, we might have to be aware that it's going to be harder for us to just get out and see the world and that we might actually just do it in VR. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's an important it's an important thing to realize that, you know, games on aging is something that will affect all of us. And I don't think considering how games are ingrained in our systems and, oh my God, if I, you know, I, I, I am somebody who's played video games his entire life. Um, I learned how to program video games by first, you know, playing them and getting an interest in them. Um, if I look at my students and how, you know, I, you know, I'm somebody sports uh, and, 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 and um, fitness is actually really important to me. I mean, I work I work out three three times a week in the gym. I still play basketball a little bit. Um, I actually used to play for the Belgium national team when I was like 16 years old um, playing basketball. So, you know, I've always been somebody who has been very physically active. But you got to realize there's going to be a time when when that's really not going to happen. And for this um, this generation of like kids, like my students, they you know, for them, sports is also video games, you know. Um, they're all into League of Legends these days. I'm, I'm still watching the NBA, but, you know, these kids are, are not into, into, the, into the NBA or the NFL anymore. They're just watching esports all the time. And granted, esports is really cool. I mean, I enjoy it myself as well. I sometimes, I sometimes watch it too. But the thing is just, you know, uh, I think our society is going to be extremely digital. And it's I think the research on games and aging and the research on games and accessibility is therefore so important because it's becoming such a huge part of our lives oh yeah absolutely and first of all that's really cool that you played for the belgian national team <laughs> well uh, as a teenager <laughs> yeah, well i mean the under a team <laughs> uh that's per that's well beyond my wheelhouse because oh, right, right. i i still look pretty dorky when i shoot a basketball Oh right, right. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't throw a football <laughs> or a baseball. <laughs> uh, I, I can't do that either. I can lift heavy things and put them back down. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and I can run a little bit, but that's that's pretty much it in terms of organized sports. Soccer, I'm okay at. Right. Hey, I'm, 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 you know, if you're a real, because I'm six foot eight, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pretty tall person. Oh, wow. So yeah, bench pressing for me is way harder than for somebody who's like, you know, five something or six, you know, six foot or something. Apparently, a personal trainer told me that at some point, you know, your, 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 your leverage or something is different, so you're never going to be able to bench as much as a person that's smaller than you. So you know, there's perks to everything, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah, well, it's, it's, I'm, I'm. <laughs> I'm five six, so right. I am a foot and two inches shorter than you, and yeah. it's just my arms have less to distance to travel to do a full rep. Right, right, right. Yeah. I I have a buddy who's a little bit shorter than me, and he's got very stubby arms. Right. And he can bench like two times what I can bench. Right, right. Just there because you go. He's, yeah. Uh, I did want to mention you were saying about making video games more accessible, mm -hmm. and that's even something especially for older people, that's something that I've had to deal with recently because, like, I fired up a new video game for for the Xbox 360, which is not even the latest generation. Right. And the controls were so complicated, I was just like... Yeah. I was just like, no, I'll... You know what? Let me fire up my N64. Mm -hmm. You know? It's got, it's got no. a choice, you know? 
And it's like, and similarly for my dad, he's like, I don't really get the Super Nintendo because there's three times as many buttons. You got the L and R triggers and then the X and the Y buttons. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's what smartphone, why smartphone gaming is so beautiful, you know, mobile gaming. I mean, the interfaces are all just narrowed down to the uh, essence. And, 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 you know, as a designer, I, I mean, I, I really love games, for example, like Clash Royale. Um, and, you know, Clash Royale is really mainstream. Normally, I don't play mainstream games as much anymore. I mean, I've seen most of what, you know, what, what's interesting about them anyways, because I've been playing video games all my life. I mean, I don't play first-person shooters at all anymore. Well, I've played a little bit of Overwatch to see what they did with that. But, um, but like, games like Clash Royale, it's just, you know, it's a real-time strategy game. Take away most of the complexities, narrow it down to something very simple, completely touchscreen, and, like... Um, my, my ex-wife, I mean, she played Clash Royale as well. It's just like, you know, uh, she saw me play that and she's like, oh, I want to play that too. I'm like, you want to play a real-time strategy game? Like, okay, yeah, sure. Here, here you go. I'll, I'll help you out. Oh, you don't have to help me out. I'll figure it out. I'm like, okay, okay, go for it. And I mean, that's what I really like about mobile gaming, to be honest, you know, and it, it definitely opened up games to an audience that doesn't have time to play games or that doesn't have time to learn how to play games. And um, I think that's really a really strong uh, evolution that we've seen. And hopefully v- VR will get to that point uh, as well. Because right now VR is still too clunky, I think, for a lot of older adults. But uh, we did some tests in the lab. But eventually it'll get there. And I think it's going to be so powerful because, you know, if you can't, if you can't go places anymore because your body is giving out and you can just visit stuff in VR, it's going to be disruptive, I think, in retirement communities. Oh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I had a conversation with um, Blake J. Harris, who yeah. who wrote a book about video game and Sega and Nintendo in the 90s, and then he's working on a new book now about VR. Mm-hmm. And and I I don't I don't love the idea of VR mm-hmm. because we as humans tend to ruin everything, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, and I just, I just feel that this could become a Ready Player One type scenario yeah, where people yeah, are just yeah. living their entire lives. Yep. Um, and I mean, it, this is just me, but I attach intrinsic meaning right. to physically going somewhere and seeing something and having a conversation, uh, things like that. So while I think VR is going to be great for the people who can't. Mm-hmm pick up and go, can't travel, can't connect with their families. I think it's going to be great. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic is what I've right. said about VR. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, and I agree with that. There's, You know, you don't want to disconnect from the real world, but at the same time, you know, maybe we're already in the Matrix, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, uh, I've actually had this conversation with a bunch of people oh, recently, sure, yeah, and yeah. it's like that this could all be a simulation, yeah, exactly. Um, now we're going to the simulation in the simulation. Like, I think there's a Rick and Morty episode or something on that. <laughs> About a simulation in the simulation? Yeah, about a simulation in the simulation of the simulation. I just keep. It's kind of like, um, what is it, like uh, Inception? Inception. Yeah. Uh, well, so my question to you is, and maybe this is getting a little deep, but say this is a simulation. Does I, it matter? I don't think it is. I, I, well, I don't think it does, really. Um, no, I don't think it does. I mean, I don't know if I would take the what is it, the red or the blue pill? It's probably yeah. the red one in, in in the matrix. It's just like uh, 
I mean, you know, the place that, that Neo ends up in is not really better than where he was before him. And does it really matter? I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm sure there's some philosophers that have written about this. I mean, it, like Plato even has like the cave allegory where it's just like, you know, everything that we're experiences are just basically the shadows of the actual objects, you know. Um, and I, it probably just goes back to that. I, I, it's not something that I've given a whole lot of thought of. I'm, I'm not a philosopher myself. Um, but I think to me it doesn't necessarily matter. You know, I mean it's just – Authenticity is something that I value tremendously, but at the same time, you know, we, I, I kind of just feel we're still just these animals kind of that evolved to a ridiculous sense where we now have a moral compass and ethical systems. And if we keep, you know, if we keep evolving and getting smarter and smarter and smarter, we'll, we'll probably develop things that we can't even fathom right now. But does life in general really matter? I don't know. I know it's beautiful, you know, it's something I value, but is it something that is important or not? It's, it's, you know, it's a really, really difficult, (laughs) difficult, you know, metaphysical question. I'm with you, man. I, I'm right there with you. Uh, I, I've thought many of the same things and I think, I think we're all on the same page with that one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have kept you for about an hour. So I just want to (laughs) say, uh, thank you. That flew by though. (laughs) (laughs) Sign of a good conversation. Um, oh, absolutely. You've already mentioned BrucalGame.com. Mm-hmm. Where can people connect with you or follow status updates with yeah. Brucal? Um, yeah, just um, we typically – well, at BrucalGame.com, you'll find the link to um, the Facebook page, the Twitter page, uh, and the YouTube page. Um, I've got a personal Twitter account as well that's available through there. Um, I have a website with bobtheshutter.be because I'm originally from Belgium, so I bought the domain name back when I was there. I think I have .com as well, actually. But um, and um, yeah, you probably need to provide the links to them because my last name is is very very difficult for um, native English speaking people to. It's actually Bob the Schutter in Dutch, but the Schutter is just like. Yeah, I've, I've never had an English-speaking person actually nail that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just go by the shutter by now. Um, I should have taken my ex, uh, my ex-wife's my ex name, actually, when I got married. Her name's is Fierce. I mean, like, Bob Fierce. How cool would that be, you know? <laughs> that's the name, like, Max Powers or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And, of course, I will include all those links yep. uh, in the show notes page so everyone can be sure that they find you at the right spots. That'd be cool. Other than that, last question. I gave you a warning before we started. <laughs> what advice do you have for everyone out there listening? No, I think I can do – well, you know, you, you said I could do dating advice as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, in terms of dating advice, whenever a girl on Tinder sends you a URL, don't click it. <laughs> 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 but uh, uh, non-dating advice though, um, I think, you know, um, the, the, the big life advice that I have for most of my students is just like uh, – don't go mainstream. I mean, that's been my motto. I mean, I grew up with hardcore punk um, in my teenage years and some metal left and right as well. But I've always been about, you know, fight the power and, and um, you know, F authority. And, um, you know, it served me really, really, really well. Uh, like, well, I kind of mentioned it a little bit, um, but it started with me. Um, you know, I was in, in the mathematics program because um, I 
you know, it was the toughest program. I didn't want to know what I wanted to do with my life. And at least I could become an engineer if I was finished that in high school. Um, but then I grew tired of it and I just switched to art school. And my dad was like, oh, my God, you're going to art school because he's a scientist and everything. But he's like, well, is that what you want? That's what you have to do. He always gave me, you know, well, my mom and dad basically always gave me all the opportunities I wanted. So I switched very drastically and I did what I wanted because I felt that, you know what, I don't have to walk any beaten paths. Um, got out of art school and I was like, ah, pff, I'm going to do a PhD in communication science, social sciences, media psychology, um, see where that goes. And, um, you know, then they were like, you have to have a topic. Um, and everybody's expecting me to do something like, you know, the effects of violent video games, something very stereotypical. Um, and I was like, no, I'm going to do games on older adults. And all the professors are like, that's not even possible because you need, an, you know, you need people to research if you want to do research. I'm like, oh, I'm sure I'll, it'll work out. And I, I, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm passionate about. So I think my main advice for people in general or in life is just like, you know what? Just get off the beaten track. That's where the interesting stuff happens. Um, and, you know, just do follow your heart. And things are not always going to work out. But even if they don't work out, you'll be stronger for it. Um, and, you know, it's an, another opportunity for effing personal growth. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you'll, you'll get places. And, uh, you know, there's definitely some privilege. I mean, I come from a good background. There's definitely some privilege in there of me saying that. But at the same time, I, I, I do feel it's, it's good advice. I do feel that, you know, no matter where you're coming from, just try to do something that's you, that's unique. And that's not what people not necessarily what people tell you that you should do or what everybody else is doing. Just get off the beaten track and, um, you know, do right by yourself. So that's my advice, man. I love that. That's awesome. Bob, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate it, my friend. Yeah, thank you, too. It's, uh, it was very fun to do. I agree. Uh, come back anytime. Let us know. Keep us posted when Brukel is about to be released, and we will help you any way we can. Awesome. I appreciate that very much. I'll, I'll definitely let you guys know. Sounds good. And on that note, everyone, thanks again for listening to the Dumbbells and Dragons podcast. Workout Nerd Out. Thank you for listening to the Dumbbells and Dragons podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes as well as a rating. We would definitely appreciate it. And while you're at it, follow us on all social media at Dumbbells Dragon. That includes Pinterest, Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Periscope, and Snapchat. Until next time, work out, nerd out.